Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's imposition of sanctions against Russian banks, elites and family members in response to Putin's move to claim sovereignty over two eastern provinces of Ukraine and speak with Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy, and we will discuss his latest articles at Time, the untold story of the Ukraine crisis and Putin's moves towards war in Ukraine show how dangerous he has become. Having spent time with Ukraine's President Zelensky at the front and interviewed Putin's close friend and pro-Russian oligarch under house arrest in Kiev, Simon is afraid Putin has become even more hawkish than his close coterie on display as supplicants and sycophants in Monday's staged National Security Council meeting in the Kremlin. Then we'll examine how close today's GOP mirrors Putin's United Russia Party and speak with Mike Lofgren about his article at Common Dreams, Vladimir Putin, the authentic leader of the Republican Party. Forget Trump, it was Putin who built the ideological template for the GOP. Mike spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees, and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. We'll discuss how Putin and Trump's GOP both stand for nothing except taking care of oligarchs while trolling, engaging in culture wars, whitewashing history, and blaming the opposition for acts of domestic terrorism. Then finally, with Biden today expressing concern over rising gas prices as he imposed sanctions on Russia, we'll speak with Amy Myers-Jaffe, Research Professor and Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and the former David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment and Director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her books include Natural Gas and Geopolitics from 1970 to 2040, Energy and Security Towards a New Foreign Policy Strategy, and Energy's Digital Future, Harnessing Innovation for America's Resilience and National Security. We will discuss her recent article at the conversation, Can the U.S. Find Enough Natural Gas Sources to Neutralize Russia's Energy Leverage Over Europe? And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Simon Schuster, reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. And his latest articles at Time are The Untold Story of the Ukraine Crisis and Putin's Moves Towards War in Ukraine Show How Dangerous He Has Become. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And and your article, uh, Putin's Moves Towards War in Ukraine Show How Dangerous He Has Become, you point out this bizarre meeting of the National Security Council that was staged in this huge Kremlin hall with him way in the distance and them in a little semicircle around as complete supplicants. It was quite surreal. And you point out that also, since Putin was trained as a lawyer, he had this sort of willingness to violate the rules of law and a pedantic wish to do things by the book. But Biden actually uh, referred to this National Security Council meeting in in a similar vein, talking about these bizarre ideas in Putin's head. 
but the fact that he's actually as hawkish as it seems, as people like Nikolai Petrushev and others, uh, and he's SV, the SVR head, that's what I found incredibly alarming. And he was sort of dressing them down as almost sort of schoolboys, at the very least supplicants. So that would indicate to me that theories that somehow Petrushev and Shoigu and these other hawks were somehow leading him astray, that doesn't seem to be the picture. It seems that, if anything, Putin's more of a hawk than they are. Yeah, that's that's uh, my read on it as well. I mean, you know, uh, I've been following all, all these characters that, that uh, we saw yesterday at the Security Council meeting for for years. Um, and th- there's kind of this uh, understanding in Kremlinology that uh, the Kremlin has many towers, as, as it's often uh, described, um, which suggests that there are these different kind of clans or uh, groups of Kremlin officials, businessmen, oligarchs, generals, spy chiefs, various power players that kind of compete and create a kind of pluralistic almost environment around the leader, the national leader, Putin. Um, and, and he acts as a kind of arbiter, taking into account their various views, sometimes siding with the hawks, sometimes the doves, sometimes the business community, and, and acting as a kind of, you know, uh, a balance between these different forces. The scene we saw yesterday really blew that uh, vision of the Kremlin apart um, because it showed that uh, Putin is the, the hawk among the hawks. Um, his, that that uh, spectacle of the National Security Council, when combined with what he said hours later in his televised speech to to the Russian public showed that the kinds of things that he seems to believe and is ready to express in his own words uh, are in line with some of the most paranoid and extreme positions that the hawks in the Kremlin have taken, like the person you mentioned, Nikolai Patrushev, is the kind of quintessential hawk um, in, in the Kremlin hierarchy. Um, but Putin sounded more hawkish than Patrushev yesterday, which which really astonished me. And also the the emotional way that he expressed it um, showed to me that we're dealing with a new Putin, one that really uh, doesn't fit in the kinds of uh, uh, constructs or theories of Kremlin Kremlinology that um, experts and, and journalists have tried to use to to explain and understand the Kremlin for for some years. Um, and that's really worrying. Uh, there, there is no balance of powers. There, there are no uh, uh, maybe more ra- rational, reasonable, um, uh, calm voices that, that can reach him. Uh, you know, just a visual spectacle of, as, as you pointed out, the distance between them, the way it was staged, uh, almost a signal to the world that Putin is on his own. He's doing this alone, and and all the people around him are merely there to sort of uh, give assent, give their assent to his uh, d- decisions, which which are you know very alarming and very very uh, aggressive in the last couple of days. Well, apparently, when Angela Merkel was in office, and she was in office for quite some time, and she speaks perfect Russian, and he Putin speaks good German as well, she would have regularly call him up just to sort of give him an objective picture of what was happening in the real world because she felt he was getting bad advice. But I guess now he's gone past that threshold, right? You can't blame it on the hawks around him. And some of what he was said in his subsequent long rant, and in fact Biden just recently in today's announcement that Biden made increasing sanctions on the VE bank and the military bank and on Russia's sovereign debt, he almost made fun of Putin's bizarre historical reminiscence. And by the way, there was incredible amount of, of a chip, massive chip on his shoulder that he has, these grudges. He even mentioned how 22 years ago, President Bill Clinton snubbed him. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you've been covering Moscow and, and the Kremlin for over 15 years, Simon. What's your take on him? Has he always been this little guy with a big chip on his shoulder, or or is it all sort of coming out now in this kind of you know explosion of anger that he displayed um, mm. yesterday? No, he hasn't always been like this. No, um, and I'm sorry for the noise behind me. I'm I'm sitting here parked, and there's a garbage truck doing its thing. Um, but no, I, I think Putin has not 
uh, always been like this. You know, the, the Russian word that comes to mind is nakapilis, uh, which is um, sort of like it's built up over time. It's accumulated like gunk in the system. Uh, and that the, the grudges and the chips on his shoulder have sort of been piled one on top of the other over the years. Um, you know, all generally pushing him in the same direction, uh, pushing him to believe that the West has no real uh, in, interest or desire to uh, cooperate with Russia, to deal fairly with Russia. Um, and and also when it comes directly to Ukraine, which is a very you know sensitive, almost personal uh, issue for him, the, the future uh, of Ukraine, Ukraine's ambitions to integrate with the West, he does take this really personally. I mean, the the general um, positions, at least the historical part of the speech we heard yesterday, uh, Putin has laid that out before, um, most most recently, and I think in the most detail, uh, last summer, um, he uh, published this uh, very long essay that uh, was published on the Kremlin website. Um, it's about 6,000 uh, some words long. Um, and it was widely ridiculed uh, among Kremlin watchers, Putin watchers, uh, experts in, in uh, Russian politics, and, and indeed Western Western diplomats and observers, generally as as a kind of pretty incoherent and uh, fact-bending screed about 1,000 years of Russian and Ukrainian history. Um, but I, you know, I think it it is important, even if it sounded a little bit unhinged, uh, some parts of that text, and and gave a, a certainly a, a novel or strange interpretation of history. Uh, it's important to to read that text closely and to listen to Putin closely when he talks about these things, because he's saying again and again how important all of this is to him. That he's he's not kidding around. You know, Ukraine is not just uh, a kind of uh, corridor for him to ship oil and gas to Europe. Ukraine is not just another neighbor. You know, he sees Ukraine as essentially an unjustly severed appendage of Russia, without which Russia cannot safely uh, exist. You know, and this this is the worldview that he's consistently set out. So I think as as Western observers, Western leaders, President Biden, look at uh, what is Putin going to do next. Um, how is he going to behave? How much can we dissuade him from further in invading Ukraine or sending troops deeper into Ukraine? You know, they have to take seriously the, the personal, uh, the historical elements of this. That this, this is not just, um, you know, an attempt to bring an unruly neighbor back under Russia's control. This, is, this, is, this goes much deeper and it's much more personal. And again, I'm speaking with Simon Schuster, reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and foreign policy. And his latest articles at Time are The Untold Story of the Ukraine Crisis and Putin's Moves Towards War in Ukraine Show How Dangerous He Has Become. Well, already, of course, the Russians are pulling out their diplomats from Kiev and one of the things that Biden mentioned in his statement today was that he's sending more military equipment to the Baltic states because if you sort of analyze what Putin said yesterday in terms of his justification, and by the way, he <laughs> back to the National Security Council meeting, he addressed down a couple of his lieutenants who used the word annex, and he said, no, no we're not annexing. <laughs> we're declaring independence. But his inver his definition of independence for these two eastern provinces of Ukraine, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, that version of independence could also extend to the Baltic states. So he's almost declaring a new Cold War here, and I don't think it was lost on Biden. He mentioned it as well. Yeah, I think so, but I, I, I wouldn't say that Putin really set out that kind of claim to the same kinds of claims that he makes on Ukraine, I, I don't think his rhetoric applies that to the Baltic states. Um, I, I think this kind of a socio-historical or cultural and religious bond that he sees between Russia and Ukraine, certainly the, the eastern half of Ukraine, um, doesn't really apply to other other former uh, members of the Soviet Union. Um, so I, I think Ukraine is, is a unique case, but, but certainly... You know, as as Putin time and again um, has made these territorial claims and waged these wars against his neighbors, that makes the Baltic states increasingly nervous. Um, you know, I was in uh, Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, uh, a couple of months ago, 
and talk to officials there. Um, they are, you know, very eager to see the U.S. Uh, and, and the NATO alliance shore up the defenses on the east. They they are, uh, you know, deeply concerned about threats to Russia's territorial integrity. One thing that a, a deputy uh, defense minister in Lithuania told me is that uh, what they're watching very closely is the way that Belarus has behaved. So during this crisis over the past um, few months uh, around Ukraine, as, as Russia has built up military forces around Ukraine, one thing it's done is it's it's sent uh, many thousands of troops into Belarus, welcomed by the government of Belarus, in a, in a kind of joint um, military threat uh, or, or staging ground um, against Ukraine, potentially. Um, and watching that from the Baltic states, which share large borders with um, Belarus, um, they see the Russian uh, military presence, you know, taking a very large step toward their territory. Um, so that, again, you know, raises the tensions now, not just between Russia and Ukraine, but Russia and NATO, where you have Russian troops, large numbers of Russian troops now stationed, um, they say temporarily, but we don't know for how long, in Belarus, much closer now to um, to members of NATO uh, in the Baltic states. So that, that's, a, that's a big concern. That's something that I think Biden needs to deal with because he is, as the president of the United States, treaty bound to defend the Baltic states if they come under attack from Russia. But I, I wouldn't um, go so far as to say that, that uh, Putin has openly threatened or suggested that he intends to attack uh, the Baltics or anything like that. You know, that would be pretty near suicidal for him. Um, uh, you know, the Russian military is quite strong, but it's, it's, it would be no match for for NATO in, in a kind of open confrontation. But but even talking about that kind of confrontation is is horrific and I think premature. Um, right. You know because we would definitely then be talking about World War Three. No, I, he and I wasn't suggesting that he made any kind of bellicose moves towards the Baltic states so much as uh, that his very elastic definition of independence could, in this kind of legalistic mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. that he, as you point out, he needs a sort of legalistic cover, this kind of pedantic legalism, even though he just breaks the law whenever it suits him. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this uh, concept of Russia, Ruski Mir, that mm -hmm. is certainly mm -hmm. something associated with him, that wherever Russians live, it's Russia. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true, and that, that's especially you know uh, concerning for uh, Estonia, Lithuania, which which both have very large um, ethnic Russian, Russian-speaking communities. Um, and you know, I I really uh, find that a, a disturbing way of framing the discussion when when Putin and, and many observers talk about the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine being somehow pro-Russian, sort of using language and the use of language as an indication of their um, political or geopolitical alliances. That, that's really misleading. And, and I want to just caution your listeners um, about that, because that, that's, that's a red herring that Putin uses to claim some kind of um, right to uh, essentially control um, Ukraine's course. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, is a Russian speaker. He comes from a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, uh, generally, uh, the, the city of uh, Krivoy Rog. So, you know, is, is he, because of his, because he, Russian is his first language and the primary language he uses in conversation with friends and advisors, does that make him somehow more allied with, with uh, Russia than, than someone who speaks Ukrainian most of the time? I, I don't think so. So that linguistic thing, you know, that, that Putin trots out quite often as, as a really an excuse to meddle in, in his neighbor's affairs um, is, is something that, that um, I, I think, you know, everybody should be really, really cautious about. And I, I think it often gets into the Western media that, uh, you know, Ukraine is 50% Russian speaking. I mean, yeah, Kiev is a Russian speaking city, the capital city. You know, most of the people, when you walk in the street, the language you most often hear is Russian. Um, but, but that doesn't mean it's some kind of Russian enclave. So sorry to go on a rant about that. No, no, but, but <laughs> a small I mean, but it, important point. Well, when you went to the front with President Zelensky, the Ukraine's president, a little while back, you were in the helicopter with him. You, you were speaking Russian with him? Yes, we speak Russian, yeah. So, but he's subject to this bizarre Russian propaganda that he's somehow a Nazi and that the Ukrainians are committing genocide in Luhansk and in the Donbass. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. that's the scary part. That seems to be a predicate. Now that they've moved their troops in, are they just sort of looking for a provocation here? I mean, I imagine from Zelensky's point of view and his military 
they're going to be incredibly nervous. And how do you avoid doing anything when you're being provoked all the time? Because that's that's what's happening. I mean, they're up to the line of control, but Putin mm. is claiming the entire provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, is he not? That's his, not, uh, well, that's his new yeah. sovereignty. It's not exactly clear where he's drawing that border. You know, he did say something at a press conference today that, you know, that would suggest that he's reaching much deeper into Ukrainian uh, territory now with these territorial claims. Um, it's, it's not exactly clear yet. It's not clear in the documents that were signed. But, um, you know, in, in terms of the provocations that Zelensky is facing, yeah, I mean, they're they're very intense. They, they have been intense. When, when we visited the front line together uh, last spring in April, um, we visited a, a part of the, the front line in the trenches where um, several Ukrainian soldiers had been killed by sniper fire just, just a few days earlier. Um, that's a provocation, you know, and, and the, the temptation to respond with mortar fire is, is constant um, to, to have some, you know, incursion. And some of the soldiers, of course, uh, want to take uh, revenge for, uh, for their comrades who were killed in, in attacks like that. But, but Zelensky um, one thing I've heard very consistently in speaking to him and, and uh, covering his presidency, uh, even from the days when he was a candidate and, and through to today, um, is that he's very much a peacemaker and he really doesn't um, have any desire uh, to send Ukrainian soldiers to die, even if, you know, for, for the sake of some scraps of contested territory. He, he made that very clear. He, he criticized his predecessors very harshly for various uh, minor incursions they made into separatist, pro-Russian separatist territory, incursions, incursions that moved the front line a little bit in Ukraine's favor, right, giving Ukraine control of a bit more territory, but in the process costing uh, many lives. Um, so, I talked about events like that uh, with, with President Zelensky, and he said, I will not do that. I will not be sending our boys to die in exchange for, for you know, disputed territory. We're going to do this diplomatically insofar as we can. And uh, it, it's not a trade that I'm willing to accept the death of Ukrainian soldiers for, you know, disputed, disputed land. Um, and I think that told me very clearly that he um, wants to be a peacemaker. He is, he does have a, thicker skin, I think, than, than other Ukrainian politicians, certainly, and leaders uh, when it comes to Russian provocations. And if there's any um, you know, president who could withstand those provocations without responding, um, I, I think it is, it is Zelensky. But the thing is, Russia doesn't really need uh, Ukraine to fire back uh, in order to have an excuse to invade. Um, it, it's shown consistently over the years and in recent months that it, it's willing to stage attacks, um, and blame it on the Ukrainians in order to create an excuse for, for a broader um, invasion. Uh, the U.S. government and the British government have both been warning consistently that Russia is preparing one of these kind of false flag operations to give, it, give itself an excuse to invade. Um, so I, I would not put that past Russia by any means. Um, I would be extremely surprised if at this point in the conflict, when you have close to 200,000 Russian troops arrayed around Ukraine from three sides, uh, that Ukraine would do something as stupid as begin, um, you know, shelling those forces uh, that are allied with Russia. That would just be um, stupid to the point of suicidal. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes, Simon Schuster, uh, just to touch on your recent article at Time, the untold story of the Ukraine crisis, which is about this pro-Russian oligarch Medvedchuk and his mm -hmm. daughter, Daria, who's Putin's goddaughter, I guess she's now 18 years old. And this pro-Russian oligarch who was the leader of the, the Russian slate, if you will, in the Rada, the opposition mm -hmm. slate, and, and how he's under house arrest. And you interviewed him when he's under house arrest. But the implication was that he could be a, an envoy of sorts to Putin. Is there any realistic... I mean, the fact that they're close friends and that his daughter is Putin's goddaughter. Can the Ukrainians use him in any way? I mean, he's under house arrest. And when you just told us how dedicated to nonviolence and peace Zelensky is, I mean, he got elected with a huge 70% majority because he was promising peace, but it was the activities of this pro-Russian oligarch and his television network, uh, Medvedchuk, 
that drove his numbers down, and he referred to this guy as the devil for what he'd done to Ukraine, and he's now under house arrest. So, in other words, what diplomatic tools does Zelensky have in dealing with Russia since Putin doesn't even want to talk to him because he thinks he's a joke and irrelevant and and mm-hmm. and a tool, a puppet of the West? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think that, that um, would have been a potentially promising avenue out of the conflict about a year ago or a little less, like as, as late as last spring or last summer. Uh, at, at the time, um, the tensions were, were really rising because uh, Putin uses a variety of tools to try to control Ukraine, to maintain Russian dominance politically uh, over Ukraine. Um, he uses soft power, and as we've all seen, he uses hard power too. Um, so Viktor Medvedchuk, this politician oligarch, is essentially the, the embodiment of Russian soft power in Ukraine. He and his allies control a number of television channels that essentially function as Russian propaganda uh, outlets within Ukraine. And they also, as as you noted, uh, control the largest uh, opposition bloc within the Ukrainian parliament um, and and the largest opposition force to the ruling government of President Zelensky. So all of of these forces internal to Ukrainian politics essentially gave Putin um, some uh, chance of regaining influence, uh, possibly even a, a kind of veto over uh, Ukraine's strategic alliances, its its strategic decision making um, through the kind of political game within Ukraine. He had his horses that he was racing in, in that in those elections. You know, the, the West supported other other politicians, and and it sort of gave Putin a, a chance to play that soft power game. Um, you know peacefully without resorting to hard power what we began to see about a year ago february and then into last spring um is the ukrainian government took a very hard line against those oligarchs they shut down those tv channels the pro-russian tv channels and as you mentioned they, they put the, the leader of the politi- the pro-russian political party medvedchuk um, under house arrest and, and seized a bunch of his assets that essentially bankrolled the pro-russian forces so what that did um is, is some of these pro-Russian politicians, including Medvedchuk, told me that that essentially cut off uh, Putin's best channel of soft power influence, his his clearest way to regain control of Ukraine by political means. And that, they said, uh, increased his temptation to use hard power, as we've seen him do, uh, certainly, you know, since the end of last spring up until today, very much uh, in the last couple of days. Um, so, uh, you know, can we go back to a point where, um, you know, Putin returns to uh, a belief that soft power can be used to regain power in, in, in Ukraine or give him some influence? I don't think so. Honestly, after after hearing the speech yesterday, I, I think we're sort of beyond that point. I think if his old friend Medvedchuk called him today and said, you know, is there any kind of deal we can make? Um, I think his response um would be, uh, you know, uh, dear Victor, we're we're past that point now. It's it's too late. Um, th- that's that's my uh, feeling from talking to to Medvedchuk uh, and, and talking to other pro-Russian politicians in Ukraine that um, Putin just no longer believes that soft power can can get him the level of control that he wants and needs. Well, Simon, just I thank you so much for joining us here for for your unique insight from having spent time with Ukraine's leader and also the pro-Russian leader as well. Really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. And his latest articles at Time are the untold story of the Ukraine crisis and Putin's moves towards war in Ukraine show how dangerous he has become. We're going to take a brief station break back discussing how Putin and Trump's GOP both stand for nothing except taking care of oligarchs while trolling, engaging in culture wars, whitewashing history and blaming the opposition for acts of domestic terrorism.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as, as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Vladimir Putin, the authentic leader of the Republican Party. Forget Trump, it was Putin who built the ideological template for the GOP. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here under rather uh, heady, heavy circumstances, I would say. Indeed. Well, we uh, started off today's program with a Time magazine reporter from Moscow who spent over 15 years in, in uh, Russia and knows Zelensky and uh, others and... It's a pretty grim picture, I must say. But for the longest time, it seemed like the Republican Party is becoming more and more like Putin's united Russia. And that's why I'm calling you, because I I really relate to your article, uh, Vladimir Putin, the authentic leader of the Republican Party. Forget Trump, it was Putin who built the ideological template for the GOP. And it seems to me it's quite possible that it's just going to get more and more obvious that Trump's GOP is more and more like Putin's party. And we don't know whether or not what percentage of the Republicans are actually going to support Biden. Normally, bipartisanship, I mean, partisanship ends at the shores, as they say, but that's not true with this GOP. You've got Josh Hawley and that dimwit Ron Johnson from Wisconsin and others who are completely on Putin's side. And you've got uh, Tucker Carlson parroting. Uh, Russian propaganda on Fox every night. So what do you expect is going to happen? Uh, You would think that they'd be shamed by what is starting to happen with Putin essentially invading, just literally claiming another chunk of Ukraine and threatening the rest of it. And if there's a huge amount of death and destruction, which there might well be, you'd think that they'd be shamed into being heroes and toadies for this little tyrant. But I don't know. What do you expect? If it gets worse, are they going to turn around and keep telling us, like the guy that Peter Thiel is supporting in uh, running for the Senate in Ohio, J.D. Vance, that we shouldn't be involved? You know, this is not our fight. Let's get out of out of Ukraine. What do you think? Well, you know, not having the credentials of Nostradamus, I can't predict. What I can say that obviously. Trump plays a role in this. Uh, He released some uh, video, or it was released on YouTube, of him being interviewed by one of these uh, right-wing shock jocks, in which he's praising Putin's invasion there of Donetsk and Luhansk as a genius move. So partly it is the dog-like loyalty to Trump among a huge percentage of Republicans, but this preceded Trump as well. You could see beginning 2012 or thereabouts, the beginning of this with religious fundamentalist types, the religious right, such as Franklin Graham, identifying with Putin's very reactionary politics that goes under the label of cultural conservatism, the sort of fake Christianity, the anti-gay stuff, and the misogyny, all that is very appealing to a large section of the base of the Republican Party. And they got their hooks into some of these groups. Uh, For instance, the NRA they cultivated, and they sent people to this country, you know, to contribute money and to schmooze their way into influential situations uh, with the NRA. And, of course, they're basically an adjunct of the Republican Party. So this kind of thing is a kind of political, cultural thing that precedes Trump. Trump intensified it, of course, but it's, it's just there. And when you add the natural knee-jerk reflex 
to oppose anything that Biden is doing, then it makes it at least a 50-50 proposition, I would say, that they do come around to not supporting not just the Biden administration, but all the democracies in Europe on this issue. Now, there's a division. Nobody wants to support Biden. Those who are sort of the what's left over of the Cold War Republicans and the Hawks, they'll sort of damn Biden with faint praise and vice versa and say, well, his weakness invited it. But that's kind of an incoherent position, given that these people basically kept their mouths shut for four years when Trump was groveling to Putin and, and trying to extort the country that we're trying to defend, Ukraine, uh, for his own political purposes. So that's a very incoherent position. And the uh, other side, the Tucker Carlson's, have at least a more straightforward, coherent position in the sense of being self-consistent. Right. They don't want any part of this because they identify with Putin. Right. Well, you mentioned the religious right forming compacts with the Russians over family values, and Putin, of course, has an alliance with the reactionary Orthodox Church, and the support for Trump and the Republicans are in the red states, the rural states, and the urban states are very blue in this country. The same in Russia. Putin supports with the Narod, with the country, and not in the cities, particularly amongst the young. And there are so many other comparisons. The most important one, of course, is that Putin and, and his political technologist, Zirkov, came up with this idea of essentially bread and circuses distracting people. And that's exactly what the GOP today is. They don't have any policies, plans, programs. They just have trolling and stunts and culture wars and obstruction. So, Mike, given that Putin and Trump's GOP both stand for nothing except taking care of oligarchs, what else can you tell us in terms of similarities? I think there's a similar thing going on between the base of the Republican Party and Putin's base in Russia in terms of they're both being demographic groups on the downgrade. If you look into the uh, red states, those are the ones with the highest rate of COVID deaths. They have a very high rate of opioid deaths, uh, the so-called deaths of the despair that Angus Deaton, who is a uh, demographer, uh, referred to, uh, suicide, alcohol, pills, just poor health outcomes generally, because these are places uh, with very poor medical care. And the Republican Party isn't going to give it to them. That's the important thing to remember. They're hooked on all this culture war stuff. But it's the same in Russia. Uh, Russia has an extremely low life expectancy for the uh, so-called developed world. In fact, it's lower than a good many uh, third world countries. Uh, their uh, per capita incomes less than the Maldives. Their uh, life expectancy is about where Bangladesh is. It's very similar in extreme cases in the United States, like eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. You have roughly the same life expectancy as people in Russia. So it's a similar demographic. They both distrust vaccines because the Republican Party here was uh, spreading all kinds of disinformation about it. And because Putin made such a big propaganda campaign of undermining confidence in the Western vaccines like Pfizer uh, and Moderna, that it backfired on him. And now there's a huge suspicion of vaccines in Russia. And of course, their own vaccine, the Sputnik, uh, is not very effective. 
you might as well take a horse dewormer. Right. Well, some of the other comparisons though, that you make in your article between the GOP and Putin is in the way that I mean, Putin had this whole rant about his, his version of history about Russia and Ukraine, which was bizarre. And today, in his announcement, Biden sort of referred to it as being pretty pretty off the wall. But there are similarities in the, the way that they've gone after their opposition in Russia with Navalny, etc., basically saying he poisoned himself. Well, the Republicans are claiming that the January 6th insurrectionists were tourists or FBI provocateurs or Antifa. So there's a real similarity there. And Putin has rehabilitated Stalin, and they've gone after, they've shut down Memorial, the historical organization dedicated to revealing the horrors of Stalin. They've shut that down. And what are the, what are the Republicans doing? They're making it illegal in this country to even teach about slavery, for example. I mean, Correct. They're redo- uh, redoing history. Glenn Youngkin uh, got inaugurated. Of course, he ran as this kind of earnest suburban dad. And a lot of these feather-brained voters said, oh, he looks so good in fleece. Well, he turns around, he's just another uh, Trump clone. And the first thing he does is try to prohibit localities, counties, from having their own rules about masking and vaccination and so forth, particularly in their schools. And now, as I grew up, I used to think that the Republicans were for uh, subsidiarity, devolution, in other words, operate things at the lowest level uh, of government, uh, like the county, the, the municipality, and so forth, because those folks know better what's for them than uh, a bunch of bureaucrats who are out of touch. Now, all of a sudden, uh, Fairfax County in Virginia cannot do that. And they had a program that was up and running and working. All this was done purely as a stunt to troll. And that's what the governor of uh, Florida is all about, trolling and the one in South Dakota, and they're all running for president. Right, Christy Nome. Yeah, so just in closing, though, we're running out of time here, Mike. Trump's obviously in trouble with his business empire collapsing around him, his own accountants abandon him because his books are completely fraudulent. So is it possible, though, that if as Trump faces massive debt servicing and doesn't have the income anymore and people are boycotting his, his businesses, he's already making a deal with the Saudis in terms of golf, golf tournaments in the desert. <laughs> and he's obviously going to be funded by Putin as long as he can. He's been funding, the Russians have been funding him with Soviets going back to 1987. He's been on their payroll. So isn't that possibly what's going to happen here? As he goes bankrupt, the Russians, Putin and the Saudis are going to find ways to get money to him, to keep him alive as a political candidate for 2024? He'll go wherever the money is. No, but what about uh, you know, them? There's, there's gonna, no question you know, about that. Right, but are they going to fund him, in other words, because he's the gift that keeps on giving for Putin, and uh, obviously the Saudis want him because he gives them a blank check? In all likelihood, I think they would. Of course, we must not also not forget uh, now his documents uh, from his administration, if even the Supreme Court has now ruled that he can't hang on to them, Hopefully, the mills of the gods are are grinding very slowly, but hopefully they will eventually produce some results here. Well, Mark Lofkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I may speak with Mark Lofkin, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Vladimir Putin, the authentic leader of the Republican Party. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into concerns expressed today by President Biden over gas prices as he imposed sanctions on Russia. 
from Russia with love I fly to you much wiser since my goodbye to you I've traveled the world Welcome back I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Amy Myers-Jaffe, a research professor and managing director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and the former David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and Environment and director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her books include Natural Gas and Geopolitics from 1970 to 2040, Energy and Security Towards a New Foreign Policy Strategy, and Energy's Digital Future, Harnessing Innovation for America's Resilience and National Security. And she has a recent article at the conversation, Can the U.S. Find Enough Natural Gas Sources to Neutralize Russia's Energy Leverage Over Europe? Welcome to Background Briefing, Amy Myers-Jaffe. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, in announcing sanctions against a couple of Russian banks, VEB and the military bank, along with sanctions against Russia's elites, uh, Putin's cronies and their family members, President Biden did go out of his way to say that he was concerned about the rising gas prices and they may well be affected by the sanctions on Russia. And we know, of course, that Germany has stopped the certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline in response to Russia's claims on sovereignty over two of Ukraine's eastern provinces. So with Gas today at $99 a barrel on the Brent crude. It eased off it to $97 a barrel. And West Texas Intermediate was trading at 94 a barrel. So obviously Biden's concerned about inflation and energy prices in this election year. So where do you think the oil market's heading, Amy? Well, I do think there's a lot of risk in the market. Russia is one of the largest uh, producers. You know, it's the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia are the real oil export and production superpowers. And we don't know how the conflict is going to progress. So things we don't know. Uh, For example, in the lead up to the conflict, there was a cyber attack on oil terminals in Europe. So in Germany and in um, other countries, there was a disruption in the deliveries of heating oil and uh, jet fuel and uh, diesel fuel because you couldn't operate the terminal to have those deliveries come out from the tanks and come out from the uh, pipeline. So it was very temporary, but of course it did send a little bit of a a price rise as uh, uh, people scrambled. And so I, I, I don't think we're out of the woods in terms of having the conflict perhaps uh, push prices higher. And, of course, there's, you know, markets, you start to get speculation in markets that maybe there'd be some kind of disruption or uh, that sanctions might get so bad that um, it would uh, disrupt uh, the ability of Russian exports to be paid for. And so, therefore, that could disrupt or delay exports where there is even the possibility that Russia could decide that it was going to boycott exports to particular countries or just in general cut its exports just to get more leverage. Um, so I just think there, uh, uh, the president is right to highlight the fact that uh, we might not have seen the end of the risks that uh, could come forward depending on um, the trajectory of the conflict. And and we're, we're, the oil market was already suffering from sort of an imbalance. So one of the things that happened, which is a good thing, is that um, here in the United States and in other countries, people were getting on the other side of the pandemic. And so you had things opening up and you had a recovery in economic growth and therefore recovery in demand for oil. Um, And there's always a little bit of a time lag when you have a sudden boost in demand. Um, Often it's not accompanied by a sudden boost in supply because Oil companies, both here in the United States and elsewhere, stopped drilling in 2020 
because demand for oil was so low because of the COVID lockdowns. And so it, you know, it's not an industry that gears up in, you know, one day. It, you know, we, we all flick the switch for electricity, but in oil, actually, it's a pretty uh, long process to plan the drilling, get the drills in place, get the work done, have the oil come out of the ground, you know, get it to market. Uh, depending on here in the United States, that can take months uh, in our shale, big shale uh, producing areas like in Texas. But in other countries, um, to enhance oil production can take years um, and not months. And so that that is sort of part of the problem when you have a sudden increase in demand because of economic recovery. Now, the one thing we know from history is that sometimes a very high oil price is accompanied by two things, one of which can be good, which is that more companies and individuals invest in energy efficiency. We buy more efficient vehicles. Maybe more people would consider buying an electric car. Uh, Corporations um, put in more energy efficient equipment. So uh, maybe we use more e-commerce, which is a very efficient way of doing deliveries, and we don't use our car to take uh, as many trips. So those things bring down demand, and we know that they bring down the price. And unfortunately, we also know sometimes when we get a big oil shock, it can curb global economic growth, and that's a bad thing, but it also brings down the price of oil quite sharply uh, historically in many different times that's happened in the last decade. So, um, so, you know, oil prices go up, but never forever. And so the question is, you know, what's the path forward? How much risk are we going to see? Uh, come out of the conflict, and, you know, how will markets respond over time? In your article at the conversation, Amy, you mentioned how Europe gets between 30 and 40 percent of its supplies from Russia. The next largest suppliers are Norway at 22 percent, Algeria 18 percent, Azerbaijan at 9 percent. And we know that the U.S. and Qatar and others have also ramped up liquid natural gas. So what are the alternatives that Europe has for a, a Russian cutoff, if indeed war breaks out? So, indeed, um, Russia did cut off uh, shipments through the Ukraine back in 2009 and 2010, and Europe did indeed put in extra facilities to import liquefied natural gas uh, into Europe, and they took many steps. They connected different countries by electricity, so more countries can have access to uh, incremental and extra, for example, French nuclear power or uh, hydropower uh, from Northwest Europe. And luckily, uh, recently, it's been very windy um, in places that generate wind power in Europe, so that's been a help. But there was a tremendous influx of liquefied natural gas into Europe uh, between December and now, and also, it's been luckily a mild winter. And so inventories of natural gas in Europe have started to be restored. And so we're not in as bad a situation today as we were, you know, six weeks ago. So, so we have some inventory. And then Europe has this thing called the cushion, which is the sort of emergency stocks uh, that can be used as another 10% to the inventory level. So so there are some some opportunities. It wouldn't be easy if Russia cut off all of the gas to Europe. A lot of people say that wouldn't happen, but you know we're in such unusual times. Uh, I hate to make uh, never like predictions, um, but I do think that the President Biden has made an effort to identify allies of Europe who could redirect their liquefied natural gas cargoes to Europe in a very big emergency. And so um, those steps might not be needing to be taken yet, um, but if we got to a problem where uh, Russian supplies were fully disrupted, uh, then I think you'd see some reshuffling um, of cargoes to Europe. You'd see increases like we already have in gas sales from Azerbaijan, and, and some other locations. 
and you would see different uh, uses. You know, they've turned back on some coal plants and, and other kinds of things like that to sort of make up the shortfall for natural gas that's used in electricity generation. So, Amy, my Staffy, what can Biden do, though? He says he's concerned about inflation, and he recognizes that the war in Ukraine, particularly if there's a cutoff of gas supplies to Europe, will drive up the price of oil. What can he do? Well, the president does have several levers. Um, he correctly, uh, earlier this year, um, and the end of last year, started to sell oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's our reserves of oil um, that we have for emergencies. And to the tune of 1.3 million barrels a day, uh, the president, if he felt it was necessary, could increase that volume to a higher volume and put more oil in the market here in the United States. At the time that he uh, started uh, in, uh, putting out uh, this program to sell from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which, remember, we, we want to be selling at the time when oil prices are high, so that's a good thing for government revenue. Um, we also were engaged in diplomacy, so China also sold from their Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and um, some other allied countries did. So we could have more oil could be, con could be sold at a high, you know, more volume could be sold um, from strategic stocks. Um, and the other possibility is that, you know, here in the United States, we're very concerned about um, fairness. Um, and we do have federal programs for assistance. There's a program for assistance for people with their heating oil bill. And uh, uh, maybe there's um, other kinds of assistance that can be for businesses that are highly dependent on um, fuel costs. And, you know, there's been a proposal. Um, I don't think it would be very effective to remove the uh, gasoline tax. I'm, I'm thinking that probably would be somewhat counterproductive because, number one, those funds are used for road repair, and we still need to do road repair. Um, and number two, it's such a small amount that um, it's not clear that actually it would actually translate much into people's pocketbooks um, because by the time um, people, you know, get to paying at the pump and driving around, you know, maybe maybe that small amount that goes to the tax on a gallon per gallon basis wouldn't amount to be very much aid. So um, I'm not sure that that's the way to go, but. In the end, um, our best tool is to use strategic stocks. Um, the other thing that the president, no president, U.S. president ever does is to talk to people about conservation because, you know, Jimmy Carter famously did that in the 1970s, and that's, you know, considered like almost a humiliating experience, uh, that a scene of Jimmy Carter in his sweater talking about turning down thermostats. Um, but in the end, um, Americans probably do want to think about how to be more conservative in how they uh, use fuel. Um, and again, it's very more difficult today in COVID times because people are concerned about using mass transportation and uh, or carpooling. But I think as we get to the spring, hopefully the tide will turn a bit on the pandemic. And so therefore, um, we could see higher ridership in uh, these sort of common transportation forms. And that would lower our oil use. Our, our driving around is higher this year than it's been um, in the past several years. We call that vehicle miles traveled. We have higher vehicle miles traveled now than we have traditionally. And employers could also, you know, continue to encourage people to uh, telecommute for part of their work week. And that would also mean that people wouldn't need as much gasoline. So what about Biden's suggestion that he would work with other oil producers like the Saudis to lower the price? Now, I understand that he had a phone conversation recently with King Salman, whose son, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, really runs the kingdom. And Biden doesn't want to talk to him. MBS had just met two days prior to the phone conversation with King Salman that the Saudis essentially stiffed Biden and wouldn't pump more gas to lower the price. 
and two days before then he met MBS met with Kushner. So you you wonder whether or not the Saudis are hedging their bets for Trump to come back. What what do you, what do you make of that? Well, I do think that Saudi Arabia will have a fundamental decision to make, and and I think that that decision probably needs to be separated from you know they want the Republicans to win the midterms or. Um, they uh, they have a historical relationship where Russia has been sort of collaborating with OPEC over the last few years. I think that ultimately what history has taught us is that when the price of oil goes too high, um, it eventually brings recessionary pressures and, and encourages governments to pass um, legislation to move oil out of their economies and it causes consumers to buy more energy-efficient vehicles. And all those things are not good for Saudi Arabia and have in past, you know, even in the last decade, have led to several times to a collapse in the price of oil. That could happen again. And also it encourages um, more alternatives and it encourages more drilling in other places. So, you know, drilling is up in the United States. Drilling is up in Canada. Uh, we have new oil coming online in places like um, Suriname and Guyana and other countries that we don't even think of as being oil-producing countries. So Saudi Arabia has to consider what is the long-term impact, so not how much revenue will they get for a month because there's a global crisis, um, but what is the trajectory that could take place if oil prices are too high and we see a drop in global growth, and we see a push to efficiency. That's not really in Saudi Arabia's interest. And they've experienced that as recent as 2014-2015. And so you would think that at some point they might think about, you know, is having the oil market be so overheated uh, really truly in their interest? Well, Amy Myers-Jaffe, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's a research professor and managing director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and the former David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and Environment and Director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her books include Natural Gas and Geopolitics from 1970 to 2040, Energy and Security Towards a New Foreign Policy Strategy and Energy's Digital Future, Harnessing Innovation for American Resilience and National Security. And she has a recent article at The Conversation, Can the U.S. Find Enough Natural Gas Sources to Neutralize Russia's Energy Leverage Over Europe? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door.